I'm on part 16 of my mini-series that we're going through, right? Uh, and, um, and we're not even, well, I guess we're about halfway down. We're in chapter 11, so we're halfway there. But we're going to deal with the two witnesses. But let me open with prayer. And are you good back there? Are you ready? So, Father, we just, all of us come in agreement tonight. And, Lord, we agree together right now over the word of the Lord. I thank you for anointing and speaking through me everything that needs to be said tonight and that there would be such an anointing on your word and that your Holy Spirit even now, he would be released out to move upon all of us that are going to be hearing this and that your Holy Spirit would help us right now to get focused and locked into what God's saying, to be able to not be distracted, but our minds will be focused, our hearts in tune, and the Holy Spirit would help us to be good fertile soil of hearts and minds, anointed eyes and ears, have eyes and ears of the Spirit. And Lord, that you would speak through me your living seeds of truth that are sown into good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit. will take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. And let your Holy Spirit, the winds of the Spirit, blow this out to the nations. And Lord, let there be a conviction. Let there be a hammer, like the Word of God, just hammering through strongholds, the sword of the Lord piercing through to where it needs to give. And let there be a washing of the water of the word. And we stand on the promise this will not return void. It will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. So we submit this unto you. And we agree together as a church. Anything of the devil that would try to hinder this word, distract, resist, oppress, in any way hinder it from getting where it's supposed to go, accomplishing what it's supposed to, we all agree together. We command that to be bound in Jesus' name and back off right now and get off this word right now in Jesus' name. There's not going to be any oppression. There's not going to be any resistance. There's not going to be anything trying to block something. We command to go now, and we thank you for your angels just clearing all that resistance out, that this will be freely going forward, no problems. And we thank you for it right now in Jesus' name. All right. Well, we know Jesus said the birds of the air try to steal the seed, and we know there is a resistance of the enemy. But we also know that as we pray, that God hears our prayers. So this is going to be powerful, and it will accomplish what God wants it to. So the reason I really wanted to pray tonight is because I'm dealing with revelation, but there's a deeper meaning in this. As you guys have seen, with the book of Revelation, it seems that there's layers of revelation within a chapter, isn't there? So tonight, we're going to deal with chapter 11. We're also going to look at Zechariah chapter 4. But I'm only dealing with the first part of 11. I'm going through 1 through 14. As we've already dealt with, um, we already dealt with the seven trumpets. Uh, here's something I shared with you guys before this sermon. Something that you need to understand is not everything in Revelation is in chronological order. So as we look at this tonight, chapter 11, the next chronological order would be 15. So 12, 13, and 14 are like what's called parenthetical. Um, so like, for example, if you're talking and then you put, rather you're writing something and you, you put a parenthesis in there, okay? So 12, 13, and 14 are like parentheses. And I'll give you just a quick example of that, not to belabor it, but in chapter 13, it talks about the false prophet and the Antichrist. In Revelation 13, they're being revealed. Well, how many knows that that's before the tribulation time? So anyway, it's not in chronological order, and you have to know that. 
So we're looking at now the two witnesses. So let me just read this and I'll explain a couple things. So in 11 verse 1, it says, Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar. So notice there's a measuring of the temple and the altar. Okay? And those who worship in it. So there's something about measuring those who worship in it. Remember that. Okay? Because I'm going to explain this a little bit more. It says, leave out the courtyard which is outside the temple. Don't measure it because it has been given to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So you remember the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the Antichrist tramples um, on Jerusalem and he kills two-thirds of the Jews. That's what it's talking about. And it says, then, but here's the interesting thing. During those days, the Bible says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. These are my two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So those that are used to um, you know, superheroes, like Superman or something like that, you know, they ain't got anything on these two witnesses, right? And so these guys, fire comes out of their mouths to devour their enemies. Wow. Well, the reason why God gave them such supernatural protection is because there was no way that they would survive without supernatural protection. You understand? They're living in the last three and a half years of the tribulation, and the Antichrist is trying to slaughter the Jews. So I'll explain all this, but anyway, let's keep going. So if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouths and devours their enemies. So if anyone, uh, so these have the power to shut up the sky so no rain will fall during the days of their prophesy. Who does that sound like? Y'all remember Elijah? It even references that in the book of James specifically, but Elijah prayed that it would not rain, and it didn't, and then he prayed that it would, and it, and it did rain. And they also have power over waters to turn them into blood. Who does that sound like? Moses. And it goes on to say, and strike the earth with every type of plague as often as they desire. Well, I mean, that's, that sounds like Moses, doesn't it? Blood, water to blood and plagues. And when they have finished their testimony... The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them. Now, there's two beasts in Revelation 13. And beast is just an animal, okay? Uh, but, you know, it's like a, when they use the word here, beast, it, it gives a connotation of like a ferocious animal, doesn't it? You think of like a wolf or something. But anyway, so these are the, the two beasts one beast comes out of the sea it's revelation 13 we're not there yet okay but it comes out of the sea and sea speaks of the mass of humanity that's the antichrist okay but the beast that comes up out of the abyss out of like the bowels of hell that beast that comes up out of the abyss that's the false prophet that man is going to be possessed by some kind of a very ancient, powerful spirit of sorcery and witchcraft. And he's going to be able to perform all kinds of signs and wonders. 
So you're seeing here again how it's like when Moses came and he's turning the water to blood, plagues are coming, and you guys have seen the trumpet judgments and there's going to be these bowl judgments during this time. So plagues are coming down on the earth. It reminds you of Israel leaving Egypt, doesn't it? Well, in the same way, think about this. These two witnesses of God are performing tremendous signs and wonders. I mean, they're shutting up the heavens. They're turning water to blood. There's fire coming out of their mouth. These are legitimate signs and wonders from God. But then the false prophet is the one that the Bible describes him in a couple other places. We'll get to this. But he's performing counterfeit signs and wonders. So once again, do you remember how Moses stood before Pharaoh? He threw his rod down. He was performing God's signs and wonders, but the sorcerers were doing it also. They were performing counterfeit signs and wonders. Do you see? It's like there's a lot of parallels here as to what's going on. So it says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss, which speaks of the false prophet, he will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. This is because they have finished what God had called them to do. And God permitted it because they were done, you see. And their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city, which is what? What's the great city in God's eyes? Jerusalem. But here, because Jerusalem is so backslid and away from God, God calls it Sodom and Egypt. Isn't that something? Where also the Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes, languages, and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. So apparently, there's going to be news cameras on them, and it's going to be going out to the nations. Okay? And those who live on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they'll send gifts to one another because the two prophets that tormented the earth <laughs> are dead. But here's, here's what's going to happen. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched. And at that, so there's a rapture right there. Come up here. They go up. They're caught away. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched. And at that time, there was a great earthquake there in Jerusalem. And a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. So here's these two witnesses. Superman. And the Hulk and all these guys, they ain't got nothing on these two witnesses. You got these two witnesses. And they're going to be prophesying. Now, let me explain a few things, and we'll move on from this. But it said that he was given a measuring rod. And he was told to measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship. Now, let me explain that. I'm going to read to you Zechariah chapter 4, but Zechariah and Haggai prophesied during the time the second temple was being built see in revelation 
there has to be a third temple. And so what it's saying here, just like in Zechariah, Zechariah was prophesied during the days that the second temple was being built. This is going to be the days that the third temple is being built. Does that make sense? So there was a measuring rod. There was a measuring that there would be a temple and there would be an altar. There has to be a temple because the Bible says in Daniel that the Antichrist will stop the, the sacrifices that are going on. He's going he's gonna to hinder that. And also, he's going to set himself up in the temple, which I'll explain in a moment. So there has to be a temple, and there has to be an altar where offerings are being brought. And so this was being measured. But here's something else. He said, also measure those who worship in it. So in Israel, there are, you know, among the Jewish people, there are some, not just in Israel, around the world, but specifically this is dealing with that part of the world, but there are Jewish people that are very devout and they, they pray regularly and even though they don't know Jesus, they worship God and they love God. And among the Jews, there's also people that are atheists and couldn't care less about God. The Lord's going to measure between them. You see what I'm saying? And two-thirds of the Jews are going to be killed by the Antichrist, but God's going to measure out a third of them that he's going to preserve supernaturally so he's measuring the temple he's measuring the altar and he's measuring those who worship in it because there's going to be a remnant from among the jews that will be preserved but he said leave out the courtyard because it's going to be trampled and then he said the two witnesses now i personally believe as I've already said, that it's going to be Elijah and Moses. Some people think it might be Enoch because he was raptured, and I understand where they're coming from, but I think that from what we read here, it seems to be Moses and Elijah. So Moses and Elijah, what does that speak of? It speaks of the law and the prophets. Does that make sense tonight? So you have what's representing in Jerusalem the law and the prophets, and these two witnesses are going to be prophesying. I have no doubt that they're going to be speaking very openly about Jesus being the Messiah. They're going to be calling people to repentance of their sins. They're going to be speaking openly against the Antichrist and saying he's a false Messiah. That he's of the devil. And because of the sins of the nations and what's going on, this is just my opinion, but I believe that these false prophets are going to, I'm, I'm sorry, these two witnesses are going to be connected to the actual judgments that are coming. So in other words, the bold judgments, they're going to be saying, just like Moses did to Pharaoh, they're going to be saying, because of your wickedness and you refuse to repent, God is going to do such and such. And then all of a sudden these things come on the earth. And man, by the end of those plagues, just like with Pharaoh, by the time Pharaoh threw Israel out, all of Egypt and Pharaoh, they were ready for them to go. They're like, man, get out of here. We will give you whatever you want. Just get out of Egypt. Because by the time God got done with Egypt, their economy was crippled. They were humiliated. They lost their crops. Their water turned to blood, so it killed all the fish. Their cattle and livestock were killed. Locust ate everything. 
their houses probably still smelt like frogs. And then, at the end of that, the firstborn died. So by the time God gets done with the world that's under the Antichrist system, the world is going to rejoice at the death of these prophets because of all the destruction that has come on the earth by the hand of God that they are prophesying about. So, let me just give you a few quick things about this. So there's going to be a time in the near future, I believe that things are really winding down. I don't think that we have a lot longer at all. I believe personally that we're about to see another major revival. It may very well be kind of short-lived, but it's going to be so intense. But just like the Bible says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh in the last days. I believe God is going to pour out his spirit. And I believe that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will be so intense that we're going to see the harvest, a harvest that may seem impossible right now, but we're going to see a harvest come in. And in this outpouring, we're going to see God is going to finish separating the wheat and the tares and he's going to purify a bride in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will be ready to meet the Lord in the air, okay? I believe that's what's next. But at the same time, it's like train tracks. By the same time that's going on, the world system is going to be moving more and more toward globalism. And you're going to see end-time prophecy being fulfilled quickly. Things are already happening. Everything the Bible says would be happening at the coming of the Lord, all of it is happening, okay? So you're going to see... In the days to come, you're going to see the world begin to unite more and more in like an ecumenical, one world type of religious system. It's going to more and more get that way. And you're also going to see the nations of the earth more and more become more global minded. A one world currency, one world military, and trying to have borders come down and come up under one leader. That's going to continue. It's already happening. If you haven't been keeping up with it, it would surprise you how much this has already been happening for the last about 20 years. And so this is going to continue and you're going to see it be completed in the near future. Regarding the nation of Israel, God has a plan for Israel as a secular nation. And you're going to see in the future, near future, you're going to see what's called the Gog-Magog War where Iran, Russia, Turkey, some of the Eastern Europe, Northern Africa, they come together as like a confederation and they're going to descend on, na on the nation of Israel and try to destroy Israel. But Israel will supernaturally be protected by God. So you're going to see that. You will also see the catching away, the snatching away of a suddenly of the remnant bride of Christ those that have made themselves ready. There's going to be a snatching, a catching away. And then you're going to see Israel, the Antichrist will really come to full power after that. And he will put the world into like 10 different regions that he rules over the whole world. And Satan gives him his throne, but he rules the world. But he's going to have them separated kind of in 10 categories. 10 land masses. And he's going to sign a peace treaty with Israel, which Israel will probably gladly receive it because after the Gog-Magog war, they feel like that they don't have any friends. 
this peace treaty with the Antichrist may very well cause them to be able to rebuild their temple and begin offerings again. Y'all following me? It may be part of the agreement. I suspect it will be. Once Israel makes an, a, a peace covenant with the Antichrist, then that's going to begin the seven-year tribulation right then, which is called the days of Jacob's trouble. For the first three and a half years of this, you got to understand that the remnant bride is gone, but there's going to be still Christians here that weren't right. They weren't ready. And not only that, but once the rapture happens, don't you know that churches are going to fill up with all the backsliders coming back to church? So there's going to be a lot of Christians here. But the first three and a half years, the false prophet, he will begin to institute. It may happen actually even before the tribulation that we start experiencing this. But the false prophet's going to force people that you're going to take a mark on your right hand or forehead. And if you don't take it, you won't be able to buy and sell. That means you won't be able to buy groceries. And so this mark is going to be mandatory and people that refuse to take it are going to be mistreated. They may, they may be imprisoned and they may even be killed. I don't know, but it's going to be a severe thing. So the first three and a half years is going to seem really good for Israel. And for the evil world, it's going to seem like a time of peace and prosperity. But for the remaining Christians that refuse to take the mark, it's going to be hell on earth, isn't it? And so the trumpet judgments of God are going to be coming down in those days. Fierce judgments. But now this is what we're reading here is the second half of the tribulation. The last three and a half years, okay? The Antichrist will set himself in the temple. He's going to stop all their sacrifices. He's going to set himself in the temple. And he's going to create an image that they're going to be required to worship. This image actually is an idol, and it's actually going to be able to speak. The Bible says that. And you're not looking at something that's like a robot or something like that, because that's not going to impress anybody. This is a supernatural thing. It's going to be able to speak. And people are going to be required. This is in Jerusalem in the temple. The Antichrist sets himself there. He declares himself to be God. And he said, you're Israel, you're going to worship me as God, and you're going to worship this image. Well, the Jewish people are not going to go for that. They're going to be thinking to themselves, you know, here we go again. You know, when did that, under Nebuchadnezzar, that happen? And it happened um, under Rome. It actually happened in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. And then again, in the days of Hadrian, things like this have happened. And so the Antichrist is going to try to force this and the Jews are going to revolt and say, you're not God. We're not going to worship you and we're not going to worship your idol. So just as the first three and a half years were severe persecution against the remaining Christians, that many of them either have starved because they can't buy groceries or they've been hunted down, put in prison, killed, whatever. It's going to be very difficult for Christians the first three and a half years. Now, the Antichrist turns his focus on the Jewish people who refuse to worship him as God. Jesus called this the abomination that causes desolation because him declaring himself to be God in the temple and demanding worship, that's an abomination. But because the Jews refuse to do it, 
Now he's going to release his military and cause desolation and destruction. And he's going to command that his military will begin to hunt down the Jews and kill them just like Hitler did. Two-thirds of the Jews will die. One-third will be supernaturally preserved. And I suspect that those that God had already measured, the temple measured the altar and he already measured the worshipers, I suspect that the third that are going to be preserved are those that have been predetermined to be preserved. But anyway, they're going to be supernaturally protected. They're going to flee to a place where they're going to be sheltered and the, the Antichrist won't be able to reach them there. It's a supernatural protection. And then it's during those days, you've got to understand the perilous times. It's during those days that the Antichrist is hunting down the Jewish people and slaughtering them just like Hitler did. During those times, God is going to have his two witnesses. These two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, clothed in sackcloth, are going to be um, prophesying. They're going to be calling down the plagues of God. They're going to be performing signs and wonders. They're going to be preaching the gospel. And they're going to be calling out the Antichrist for what he is. And you know as well as I do, the Antichrist is going to hate them and want them dead and send people to kill them, but then fire comes out and fries all their enemies. So the Antichrist is stuck with them until God's done with them. There's a lot more I could say, but at the very end of those three and a half years, after the third of the Jews has been protected and all of that, it's going to be perilous times. Those bold judgments are so severe. We'll get into them soon. But at the end of those days, the nations will gather from all over the world. The nations will gather against Jerusalem. And the remaining Jewish people will be crying out to God for salvation which in Hebrew is Yeshua, the name of Jesus. But they're, they're going to be crying out, save us, save us. And during those times, that's when Jesus is going to come. He's going to split the eastern sky and his glorious appearing and come to Jerusalem to sit on the throne of his father David and reign for a thousand years. So I kind of had to give you the backstory and then show you the last three and a half years of the tribulation is the days of the prophets. All right. So let me just read a few things. I'm going to share a few more things that I felt led to share tonight. But Zechariah chapter 4 is prophetic and it's connected to Revelation 11. You'll see this. It says, Zechariah, this was in the days of the second temple being rebuilt. So you guys remember Ezra and Nehemiah, those days, okay? They needed a lot of encouragement. And so Zechariah was used of the Lord to bring a lot of encouragement to him. And it says in chapter 4, The angel who had been speaking with me returned and woke me like a person who was awakened from his sleep. And the angel said to me, What do you see? So Zechariah is getting this vision from the Lord. And Zechariah says, Behold, a lampstand of gold and its bowl on top of it. So you guys remember the menorah, the seven-branch menorah. And the center branch has like a bowl, a golden bowl on it. And it says, it's seven lamps on it are the seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps, which are on top of it. Also, the two olive trees that are on the right side of the bowl and it's left. So you have this menorah with a bowl there and you have two olive trees on each side. 
and one on each side and these olive trees okay and then it says um and i responded a second time and said to him what are the two olive branches which are beside the golden pipes which empty the oil into them and the angel said do you not know what these are and he said no my lord then he said these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the lord of the whole earth and so in those days it was referring to zerubbabel and joshua the high priest and i recently taught on this so you have the kingly and the priestly coming together which is a picture and type of jesus who is both king of kings but he's also our great high priest okay but isn't it interesting that in the book of revelation we have again you have like two olive trees if you will sons of oil and you have there you have the law and the prophets and as they come together what do the law and the prophets point to they point to jesus so everything it reminds me of the road to emmaus where jesus preached probably the greatest sermon that's ever been preached he goes through the law and the prophets and expounds to those that were there they didn't even recognize who he was but he expounds to them about the messiah and how he must suffer and how all the law and the prophets pointed to him so i have no doubt that moses and elijah are going to be preaching some very powerful sermons that will ring out in jerusalem that are going to be calling the jewish people to repentance and coming to the messiah all right so let me share a few more things tonight this is just kind of something i felt god wanted me to share that's connected to this so when you think about moses and elijah you think about the law and the prophets regarding the nation of israel this has to do with their heritage doesn't it, it has to do with heritage and so i'm gonna give you a few things tonight and i really i hope this makes sense i'm gonna do my best but this is something god's really laid on my heart because i see an emerging generation coming up and i see some warnings so jesus said this in the day that jesus walked the earth and ministered there were people who were sadducees and what the sadducees were were the descendants of aaron and so there was a lot of sadducees but they were actual descendants of aaron they were rightfully the priesthood the pharisees were made up of different tribes but these were religious zealots that studied the law and you had different tribes like benjamin etc that were represented there and they together create they made up what was the sanhedrin and the government of the nation of israel at that time and in that those that were great bible scholars students of the word of god those that maybe would be used to to um, write out the Torah letter per letter those type of people uh, they would have been considered scribes okay and listen to what Jesus says here in Matthew 13 52 Jesus said to them every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven so this is somebody that was a scribe but they became a follower of the Messiah they accepted Christ they were born again you see he said those type of people are like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things old and new so there's something about heritage 
See, if you really want to understand the New Testament and you really want to get deep in your understanding of it, you have to go back and study the first five books of the Bible and understand how the Lord fulfilled it. If you don't do that, you're not going to really have that depth that you could have. Just like, for example, if I was to take, if I was an artist, well, like Jerry over here, if I was to take something and, and draw it in a two-dimensional, but once you start adding the shadows to it and give it depth, it looks, it appears three-dimensional, doesn't it? So the way the Bible says about the Old Covenant, it was a type and shadow of what was to come. So Jesus is saying the scribes will understand things. They'll understand the depth of the word. They're going to understand the meat of the word. They're going to understand both the old and the new together. Is this making sense? As I'm, boy, I'm going somewhere with this tonight. I, I hope the Holy Spirit, I just ask the Holy Spirit to help me with this. Because when these two prophets are prophesying in Israel, this is the heritage. This is, this is Israel's heritage, the law, the prophets. And they're, they're calling them to repentance, to return to God, but also to return to, to, get, to come to know Christ, rather, to accept the gospel. And I remember that my time, I had some time with Steve Hill and we spent some time together and he'd spoken in my life and prayed with me. One of the things he told me was this. Steve Hill told me, he said, Leonard Ravenhill told him that if you want to go deep, that you need to go back and study things from the past. And see, Leonard Ravenhill was somebody that really the life of John Wesley, I believe, really inspired Ravenhill. And he studied the life of John Wesley. And he told Steve, he said, if you really want to have some depth to yourself, some depth to your walk, some depth to your understanding of the things of God, he said, you need to go back and look at the things that were. And I remember during the days of Brownsville, I have on video where Steve Hill would get up, and here he is seeing a move of God in his day, but he had this notebook that he carried with him. He'd open it up, and it had a bunch of little clips and things in it of various facts of revivals and quotes, but I remember I had video of him talking about these things. He would talk about the Great Cambridge Revival. He would talk about William Seymour and Azusa Street, but he got that from Ravenhill, who taught him, said, if you really want to have some depth, you need to go back to your heritage and study out the past some. And what's concerning to me today is that I'm seeing, I mean, let me take it this way. I'm just kind of flowing now with the Holy Spirit the way he wants me to share this. But I was really fortunate because when I came to know the Lord and really give my life to the Lord in January of 95, there was a great revival that happened in the 80s, mid to late 80s, into the, the 90s, this great revival had to do with teaching. And it was so powerful because it's some of the greatest teachers, in my opinion, that we've had since the early church. One of them was Derek, Derek Prince, who died in 2003. 
brilliant mind, studied the word, incredible teacher of the word. And he brought so much to the body of Christ, but one of, one of the things that really stood out was he brought the understanding about spiritual warfare and deliverance to the body. You had great teaching from Kenneth Hagin Sr. And unfortunately, some people came after him and taught things that were extreme, but he didn't. And he stuck with the word and he, he was a man of faith and he brought a lot of revelation to the body of Christ about faith and about healing and about the gifts. And God really moved mightily in those days through Benny Hinn and, and his, his book, Good Morning Holy Spirit, brought such understanding about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. In those days, Larry Lee brought such great teaching about prayer. Dr. Cho, one of the greatest teachers, I love his ministry, and he, one of the things he taught so powerfully was about prayer. But Dr. Cho taught a lot too. There was such a revival of teaching and what has really grieved me is that i could go on there's more people i could reference during those days i began to really study the word i mean i would spend hours in prayer and in study and i was studying uh, a lot of these deep teachings i was getting a foundation in my life it was around 97 that i began to study end time prophecy And I was so thankful looking back on it because at the time I didn't realize obviously what was coming, but I was so thankful that I had the opportunity to, to study under such great men and women of God that were great teachers. I remember Dick Rubin taught so much as a, from a Jewish perspective, the Hebrew roots of the faith. It laid such a foundation in my life in the 90s. And what has really grieved me, and I say this in the with a right heart i really do but i'm not seeing that type of depth today and a lot of the younger generation that that listen to our podcast and follow our ministry i speak to you like a spiritual father and i'm telling you guys to hear what i'm about to say here listen to what leonard ravenhill told steve hill if you want to go deep go back as I'm saying this in love, I'm not meaning this critically or with a mean spirit at all. But I'm just telling you that a lot of the teaching today is shallow. I've seen things on Christian TV that is so shallow, it's stuff that I would have learned because my parents took us to church. I would have learned in children's church and maybe junior high. And this is being taught to adults and they're all ooing and aahing. It's embarrassing. If you want to go deep, you're going to have to go back. And I'll, uh, maybe I need to put some references in these notes for those that follow our ministry, some books that I recommend, because to be quite honest with you, some of the greatest books now are probably out of print. You're probably going to have to find them on eBay or Amazon used. But I'm telling you, there needs to be some depth. You know, Jesus talked about these days that we're looking at. He said that, there, when the abomination that causes desolation takes place. He was speaking to the nation of Israel. He was prophesying of a day to come. He said, when this happens, he said, don't go from your rooftop inside to get stuff. You better just take off. Because in the nation of Israel, 
a lot of times people's houses are built in such a way that to relax in the evening people stay on the rooftop up there and they they sit down and relax and all they was saying when this abomination that causes desolation happens he said don't take time to pack your bags he said you just need to take off and flee because he saw that the antichrist would be slaughtering them and listen to what he said he said, pray that your flight will not be on the Sabbath. You remember reading this? And he also said, woe to those that are nursing babes. Obviously, in the natural, it's going to be difficult for pregnant women and those that are with child that's very young, that, that they're going to have to carry them as they flee. It's going to be difficult for them. But I would say this, that I think that maybe there's an underlying message in that that says this, woe to those that are going to be nursing babes in the last days in other words those that are going to remain spiritual babies pastors that are not going to help their people grow up in the lord and get off the milk and on the meat they're just going to stay babies are y'all hearing me woe to the babes in the last day because they're not going to have the roots and they're not going to have the fortitude and the strength in the last days that they need to endure did y'all hear what I just said right there? There's going to have to be some depth. As I was looking through these scriptures, there was another scripture that came to mind in, a, in Matthew 13, 33, kind of an obscure scripture you probably never heard preached on before. But Jesus spoke another parable to them and said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour, three different lumps. See, leaven in the Bible speaks of sin. And the, if you look at the kingdom of God since the days of Jesus, what would be considered the greater Christendom by the world, you're going to see three different categories. You see Roman Catholicism, which is certainly not true Christianity. You're going to see Eastern Orthodox as number two, and then you're going to see Protestantism. But I'm telling you that what the devil has done is he's worked a lot of leaven in, hasn't he? And this is something I feel tonight to share, and I'm going to close with this, but the devil is trying to destroy foundations. Number one, foundations where things that have been established over a long period of time, doctrines that were established many years ago, even the gospel itself, the devil is trying to destroy foundations. Just like I talked about a few weeks ago, I talked about how the foundations of even the gospel, there's a false gospel being preached foundational teachings things that would have never been questioned before now are being questioned the devil is trying to mess with our very foundations ancient boundary stones where our spiritual forefathers of the faith set up parameters and they basically this is stuff the body of Christ needs to live according to we don't need to have these things going on in the lives of Christians. They were godly convictions that our spiritual mothers and fathers set in place. These are like ancient boundary stones that were set in place. 
And the Bible says in Proverbs 22, 28, do not move the ancient boundary stones your fathers have set. And I've told this parable many times, but I, just for, this, for the sake of getting it in this series, a, a modern day parable would be, you know, if there was a group of people that lived along a river and their fathers, of the, you know, many years ago built this huge cement wall. And now it's somewhat dilapidated. It's ugly. It's got growth on it. It's, you know, it's an eyesore. And several generations later, they're talking about tearing it down. An ancient boundary stone that their fathers put up and they never inquired why did they put it up. And so as they met in their city council, they said, well, we're going to tear it down because it's an eyesore. So they go and they tear it down. Well, a couple years pass and there's a torrential rain. The, the river begins to become so full. It's, it's sweeping in there like a tsunami and it wipes out their homes. Many children die. Many elderly die. A lot of their crops are destroyed. Many of their animals die. And then they realized there was a reason our fathers put that wall there. We should have inquired before we just tore it down. And so they suffer the loss, but then they begin to rebuild again what the fathers put up. And I see godly convictions begin to wane in our day. There's things that are being permitted now in church that would have never been permitted. In particular, alcohol has gotten out of control. Not to mention other things. But it's permitted week in and week out. Why? Because a different gospel is being preached. And it's a gospel that placates people and makes them comfortable in their sin. And it's not a gospel that convicts people. People are too concerned about the wrong things. They're too concerned about how many people are coming, the size of the building, the decor of the building, all the wrong things. When they should be concerned about, am I preaching the truth? Is the Holy Spirit moving in our lives being transformed by the power of God? The foundations are being broken up in, in many places. And, and even things like, for example, when I was growing up, there are several things I see challenged today, but one of them is even end time prophecy, the rapture, things like that. It's being under attack. Foundational teachings. Ancient boundary stones. Also our heritage. God spoke to me a little while back and he said to me, he said, I want you to get back to your root system. And I, I knew what he was saying to me, and I know about the Hebrew roots, and that was part of it, but I knew that my roots go back to Pentecost and go back to revival, and that's when I began to firm up some things, and you guys know about that, but I wanted to stay connected to my roots. But see, that's my heritage. That's our heritage. But what concerns me is, is that I'm seeing that the devil, just like he did, after 300 years, the church was one way, Constantine comes to power. You've heard me talk about it a lot. And he began to change everything. But the changes that Constantine made led into the Dark Ages. I see the same thing now. That foundations are being cracked. Boundary stones moved. And our heritage as believers is being lost in many ways. I'll give you an example. A lot of places that used to be considered a Pentecostal church 
you will never hear tongues in that church. And so tongues will not be there. The gifts are not in operation. And so the heritage is being lost. And see, there is something from a spiritual parent to child. There is some kind of a heritage, a blessing that's supposed to be coming down to us. But people are forsaking their heritage. There's also root systems that God has for us that we're supposed to be connected to our spiritual roots. There's ancient wells of revival, so to speak, spiritually speaking in the Bible. When Isaac redug the wells of his father Abraham, it has to do with redigging the wells of revival. There is something there that God is wanting to pass to our generation. But I'm seeing a generation coming up that I'm very concerned about some things because they're not connected to those roots. They're not connected to that heritage. There's a lack of depth that I see. I've said this before, and Perry Stone said this, and you know, when I look at some people that have depth to them, well, Perry Stone sticks out as one, but you know, he had spiritual fathers of the faith. He had, you know, Floyd Lahan, he had T.L. Lowry. He had people like his father that mentored. And there was like a passing from one generation to the next, and there was some depth there. See, he studied under the right people, so he got his foundation there. There's, do you see what I'm saying here? When you look at this, he had a good foundation ancient boundary stones that he honored the convictions of his fathers there was a heritage there was a root system there and now brother perry kind of has a depth to his message there's several others i could point out like that that you can look at their life and there's a depth there i think about um you know john kilpatrick had a spiritual father steve hill had a spiritual father there are people that had that had that heritage they were connected to something greater than them that laid a foundation and i remember brother perry was saying this not long ago and it's so true he was saying you know there was a generation that's older now listen to what he's saying he said there's a generation that's older now and many of them are starting to die off but he said they actually understand end time prophecy because they studied it out in their generation but he said there's a generation now coming up that doesn't understand it it's true john davis when he was here he told me he said listen he said in my generation talking about ancient boundary stones he said we knew we were taught to avoid certain things and we avoided them but now he said there's a generation coming up it's like anything goes And I think about in the early years when I was, when God was doing that work in my life, so God brought different people in my life, but there was two elderly women that were in the church that were intercessors, prayer warriors, had been prayer warriors for many, many years. And I used to go there and spend the day in prayer and I was studying the word and God was really doing a work in my life and they would show up and come in and be in there interceding. And so they noticed me there. They began to take me under their wing and teach me how to pray. And they helped lay a foundation in my life about prayer. 
But it's interesting because I've also heard people say this, and I say this with love, and I'm trying to help people because there's people that listen to me, and I, and I hope that they hear what I'm saying here. But people have talked about there's a baby boomer generation that they understood prayer, but, he's, but they've said that they're dying off, and there's a generation coming up that really doesn't understand the depth of prayer and intercession. How many times have I heard from people coming into River of Life, how many times have I heard this, that they sit because the Holy Spirit, we'd worship and then there'd be some intercession and they would tell me, Pastor Scott, I go all over the nation. I don't hear this anywhere. How many times have I heard that? Over and over and over and over. You know why? Because see, I'm trying to show you guys something. There was a heritage in those two elderly women that they passed to me. It's a spiritual thing that is now in my life and in this ministry. And by the grace of God, it's going to be passed to the next generation. And I'm already seeing it in my daughter. See, there's revival that has been passed to me. There's a heritage. Pentecost. I'm not ashamed of tongues. The gift, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is in my life. It's in this church, and it's going to be passed to the next generation. But there's got to be some areas of some foundational issues that are established. And what concerns me is, is that used to, I mean, I hope people can hear this, used to, there wasn't what there's available now online, but people would humble themselves and submit themselves to the local church. What does Peter say? He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. What is the hand of God? The hand of God has five fingers. What is it? The apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Peter said, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. There was a time that people would come to church and they honored the house of God and they humbled themselves and submitted to spiritual authority and there was a respect toward the authority there and respect toward God's house. But I'm seeing more and more there's something there in this generation that there's like a disrespect for God's house and a disrespect toward the authority. And now people are going out through the internet and listen, anybody that, you know, they got an iPad for Christmas or whatever, anybody can get on YouTube and make a video and act like there's some kind of a Bible teacher. It don't mean that they know what they're talking about. There are some good things out there, but there's far more of it that's flaky. There's all these conflicting views. And what I'm seeing is I'm seeing people that are getting away from the house of God and getting away from that deep teaching of the word. They want to go online. They want to be lazy. They don't want to study for themselves. They just want somebody to tell them something. And listen to some things I've seen. I say this in love, but knowledge puffs up. And I've seen some people get on YouTube and begin to hear something and they think, well, they're getting some kind of an esoteric knowledge that in their mind, their pastor doesn't understand, their church doesn't understand. So pretty soon they start thinking they know things that other people don't and they start getting lifted up with pride and they start getting a rebellious streak about them. And they start making left-hand comments about the pastor and the leaders in the church. And all the while, they become this YouTube theologian. With, with supposed esoteric knowledge that none of us have because they're so much smarter than all of us. And they get more and more arrogant as the days go, more and more rebellious. They, they're not humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God and pretty soon they start forsaking the house of God. 
And they find themselves going from place to place. And before long, they start criticizing, fault-finding. Why? Because they're so much smarter than every other pastor in every other church. And they'll start trying to gather people under themselves and teach them like there's some kind of spiritual authority. And the last thing I want to say is this, history. We've got to go back and learn from our history. Is it okay that I read you guys a story of the Cain Ridge Revival? I'm, gonna give, I'm closing with these last couple things on here, but we've got to have a move of God. And every time that God begins to move in great revival, it's not just an outpouring of refreshing it seems like God is calling people back to repentance and he's re-establishing things that were lost. Restoration. Every time. And let me give you something like a sermon in like two minutes. The Cambridge Revival was in 1801. Those of you that know history know that as far as the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776. So this was... 25 years after we became we broke off from britain it's a young fledgling nation we had our 13 colonies along the eastern coast there was a man by the name of james mcgreedy and y'all give me your best ear because some of y'all i feel like people are going to hear this it's really going to inspire something in their spirit tonight there's a man by the name of james mcgreedy who was a man of god a man of prayer he was a pastor but he was a man of god that prayed and fasted he would hear from God and he would preach fiery messages. And because of that, people would really repent and get right with God, but it also ticked off the heathen that didn't want to repent. And so some heathen in the Carolinas where he was pastoring got sick of him. And so they started threatening him and he wasn't going to stop preaching what God gave him. So they came and they burnt. They tried, I believe, they tried to burn down the whole church but they ended up burning down the front area where his pulpit and all that was. And James McGreedy comes in the next Sunday standing in a pile of ashes, opens his Bible undeterred, and preaches standing on the ashes, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wish to gather you under my wings like a hen gathers a chick. But you would not have it. And he preached this fiery message, and then he leaves town because Daniel Boone had come in. You ever heard of Daniel Boone? He comes in and tells the people, y'all need to go to Kentucky. It's good land. So a bunch of people start moving out that way, and he goes with them, a bunch of Irish Presbyterians. He gets out there in this new area, Kentucky, and he starts a church, builds it, and he begins to preach. He begin, people begin to come. What's happening? He's a man of prayer and fasting and a man that preached a fiery message of repentance. So the people that came really, truly started getting right with God. They started repenting of their sin. They started really experiencing the Lord in their life. And James McGreedy started feeling, I need to get with other pastors. We need to come together and we need to unify and believe God for revival. So in 1799 or so, he began to contact other groups and they decided to come together and they were going to pray. They were going to fast. They were going to humble themselves and repent of their sins. They were going to take communion together. And they were going to ask God to come down. You know what? The Holy Spirit fell. And this was, began to be known as the Red River Revival. The Holy Spirit fell. There were hundreds 
And some of them were struck to the ground. They were convicted. They were repenting. They were getting right with God. And people began to really um, get stirred in their spirit. And so they were going back talking about it where they came from. And a little group started gathering and doing the same thing. They were gathering and praying and believing God. And God was really moving. And so James McGreedy said, we need to do this again. So the year 1800, they gather even more come this time. And now, not just hundreds, but now thousands of people are getting right with God. The Holy Spirit is falling. And you could see groups of people would just be struck to the ground under the power of God. And while they were under the power, they were having an encounter with Jesus. And they were getting right with God. And it was, there was a revival movement. It was very powerful. And Barton Stone had come from Cambridge area to this Red River Revival. He'd heard about it. He's a Presbyterian pastor. He brings a heathen friend. And to his, you know, uh, it was a surprise to him, but it was a pleasant surprise. His heathen friend gets struck to the ground under the power of God and gets right with God. But while Barton Stone is there, he's looking at all these things that are happening. He's seeing people that under the power of God, their whole body is shaking so violently, there's no way that you could do that. He saw people suddenly shriek and get hit by the power of God and collapse in numbers several at a time. And he was noticing that they would be there like a dead person, but they would kind of come to and they'd be saying, forgive me, Jesus, I repent. And then they'd go back unconscious. But later they would get up off the ground. It looked like their face was shining and they were totally transformed. He saw this happening and he saw some of them, even a young girl, get up and begin to tell about Jesus and what God did and the people listening got struck to the ground. And here Barton Stone is a pastor, Presbyterian pastor, and he's taking notes. He said he saw some people, the Holy Spirit began to fall and they were gripped with the fear of God and they would try to break out running away just to collapse on their journey. <laughs> to have an encounter with God. He said he looked at some people that were shaking under the power of God so fast that he said their features blurred. He said, you can't do that even if you want to. And Barton Stone was a brilliant man anyway. There's a lot I could say there. But he said, I concluded that this was a true move of God because he said, I saw the gospel being preached uncompromising. And he said, I saw people in mass getting right with Jesus Christ and repenting of their sins openly. And he said that lives were transformed and he said the devil would never do that. <laughs> and so Barton Stone goes back in 1800 and he begins to talk about it to his congregation. His congregation felt it. I mean, when you get touched in revival and you talk about it, you can feel it. People feel it. People were going back where they came from and talking about it. And they began to have little groups gather and the Holy Spirit was falling there. But they, they, you could feel it. They come back talking about it. So Barton Stone goes back and says in Cane Ridge now, he said, they've been having a great move of God in Red River and we need to do it here. He said, I want to gather others together. And we're going to come together from other congregations and we're going to humble ourselves and we're going to pray and we're going to fast and we're going to repent of our sins. And we're going to ask God to move. And we're going to take communion together. And the church said, we're with you, Brother Stone. And so they began to announce in 1801, come to Cane Ridge. Barton Stone had built something outside expecting, you know, maybe 500 people. Our military estimated 
1801 that around 25,000 up to 30,000 people descended on Cambridge. Barton Stone had no idea that many people would come. He was totally unprepared. And as the people came, there was a stirring in the spirit. People, the Christians had been praying and fasting. There was a unifying. The Baptist and the Methodist and the Presbyterians came together. There was a unification. It was really on the heart of Barton Stone to see that. And they were ready and they were asking God to show up. Now I'm going to read this story because I'm talking about our history. I'm talking about foundational issues tonight. I'm talking about getting back to our root system. So here's what happened. Among those in the audience at Cambridge were some detractors, some troublemakers, some that were there like mockers. One of them was named Robert W. Finley. Even though he was the son of the builder of the Cambridge Meeting House, who was Reverend James Finley, who was also a very successful circuit rider. You guys remember Brother Zach teaching on that? Yeah. He was a circuit rider in those days. But his son was not like his dad. He was pretty prideful. And this is what he had to say. He came to Cane Ridge, tens of thousands of people. He came there more as a mocker than anything else. And so here's what Mr. Finley said. He said, on my way to the meeting, I said to my companions with me, if I fall, it's going to be by physical power. In other words, somebody's going to push me down. It's not going to be by singing or praying. Well, he was making fun of stuff going on. He said, I prided myself in my manhood and my courage. I had no fear of being overcome or nervous or being frightened into any type of religion. We arrived upon the ground there at Cambridge, and here a scene presented itself to my mind, not only novel and unaccountable, but awful beyond description. He said, it was a vast crowd supposed by some to have amounted up to 25,000. They were collected together, and it was like the noise of the Niagara, the loudness of all the sounds going on. A vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated like a storm. The Holy Spirit was moving. He said, while I was watching this at Cambridge, I saw seven different ministers, all preaching at one time. Some of them on stumps, others on wagons. And one Reverend Burke from Cincinnati was standing on a tree that had fallen and lodged between another. Some of the people were singing, others were praying, some crying out for mercy in the most piteous accents. They were, they were weeping and wailing and crying out. While others shouted, he said, while witnessing these scenes, here we are. You get in the presence of God. While I was witness these, these scenes, he said, a peculiar, strange sensation came over me. Such as I never felt before. My heart began to beat. My knees began to tremble. My lips began to quiver. And I felt as though I was going to fall to the ground. A strange supernatural power seemed to pervade the entire mass of those there. I became so weak and powerless, I found it necessary to sit down. Soon after, 
I left and went into the woods, and there I strove to rally up my strength. I tried to philosophize this in regard to the wonderful things I saw, resolving them in mere sympathetic excitement. In other words, they were just all hyped up. It was a bunch of emotion, a kind of religious enthusiasm inspired by the songs. But my pride was wounded. For I had supposed my mental and physical strength could most successfully resist these influences. After some time, I returned to the scene of excitement, the waves of which, if possible, had risen even still higher. The same awful feeling came over me. This, you know what he's feeling? The fear of God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I stepped upon a log, and there I could get a better view of the surging sea of humanity. The scene that had presented itself to my mind was indescribable. At one time, I saw at least 500 swept to the ground in a moment, as if a battery of a thousand guns opened on them, and immediately followed shrieks and shouts that rent the very heavens. My hair rose up on my head. My whole frame trembled. My blood ran cold. I fled for the woods again. <laughs> While I remained there, my feelings became intense and insupportable. A sense of suffocation and blindness came over me, and I thought I was going to die. There, being a tavern about half a mile off, I concluded I was going to go get some brandy. In other words, he says, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go to where the heathen are, and I'm going to drink this off me. <laughs> That's what he said. But he said, I got there, and the brandy had no effect. But if anything, it made it worse. That's what he said. He said, night at length came on, and I was afraid to see any of my companions because I was avoiding them, fearing lest they should discover what was going on with me. He avoided everybody. But he said, in this state, he said, I wandered about from place to place in and around the encampment. I believe his daddy's prayers are being answered tonight. I do. Why was he even there? See, a lot of times your parents' prayers get you there, you see. At times it seemed as if all the sins I'd ever committed in my life were vividly being brought up in an array before my terrified imagination under their awful pressure. I felt as if I was going to die. My heart was so proud and so hard that I would not have fallen to the ground for the whole state of Kentucky. I felt that such an event would have been an everlasting disgrace and put my final <laughs> boasted manhood and courage would be over. But he was, he was being under this conviction. Isn't this awesome? This guy went there to mock. He said, ain't nobody going to push me down. He's laughing. He's making fun of it with his friends. Nobody's going to push me down. I'm going to go there and, and, and we're going to see a little bit of singing or whatever. And the Holy Spirit, came upon him so powerful he said that night i went to a barn in the neighborhood and creeping under the hay i spent the most dismal night <laughs> i resolved in the morning to start for home i'm out of here basically for i felt that i was ruined as a man finding one of my friends who came to me he said captain let us be off and he said i will stay no longer he he assented and we got on our horses and started for home and we said, but a little on the way. In other words, they didn't talk. So here they are riding down the road, not saying anything. 
Though many a deep, long, drawn-out sigh told the emotions in my heart. So while he's writing, he's, he was grieved. I mean, the Holy Spirit was really touching him. When we arrived at Blue Lick Knobs, he said, I broke the silence which reigned mutually between us. And like a long, pent-up water seeking an avenue in a rock, the fountains of my soul were finally broken up. He was a hard-hearted person. But all that night, that hardness was being broken down by the Holy Ghost. The conviction. His sins were being brought up before him. The Holy Spirit was working on him all night. And finally, he couldn't take it anymore. And he said, came, then came from my streaming eyes, bitter tears. I could scarcely refrain from screaming aloud. Night approaching, we put up near Maslick, the whole of which was spent by me in weeping and promising God. If he would spare me till morning, I would pray and mend my life and abandon my wicked ways. Men of the most depraved hearts and vicious habits were made new creatures in the Cane Ridge Revival. And a whole life of virtue subsequently confirmed the conversion. And listen to the end of the story. Robert Finley, the man who went to Cane Ridge to make fun, spent a couple days under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, got right with God, and listen to this. He went on to become a lifelong minister of the gospel in the Methodist church. That's something that no man can do. No man did do it. He never referenced in there a particular individual. He kept saying that this came over me and convicted me. That was the Holy Spirit. What I'm trying to say in telling that story is we've got to get back to our roots. We've got to see a move of God. And let me read a few more scriptures and then I'm going to pray. Jeremiah 6, 16 says this. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in that and you will find rest for your souls but they said we will not walk in it there's a generation coming up that the path the ancient paths of revival and pentecost and the power of god that deep sound doctrine the teaching the meat of the word those type of things are unattractive and they're looking for the smoke and the lights and the buildings and the numbers and the hype and the excitement. And as I read earlier, Proverbs twenty two twenty eight: do not move an ancient boundary stone set by your fathers. But the last two scriptures, 1 Kings eighteen thirty: in the days of Elijah where he called down fire from heaven and killed the prophets of Baal, remember that? Before that happened, Elijah said to the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Jezebel tore down the altar. But Elijah had to rebuild that altar. You know what that altar is? Prayer. See, we've got to get back to prayer and fasting and heart worship and digging down deep and tapping into the wells of revival. And Isaiah 58 promises those that will pray and will fast 
He said a promise of Isaiah 58 was that you will be among those that rebuild the ancient ruins and raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called to repair the breach and to restore streets to dwell in. So in other words, the things that the devil came in to steal, kill, and destroy, foundations, boundary stones, the walls of protection torn down, all that the devil came in to, to rip away heritage. He said, if you, if you will rebuild that altar and become a people of prayer and fasting, you will be among those that help rebuild the ancient ruins and see a move of God in your day. So, Father, as we close this out tonight, we're believing you just like Robert Finley. Lord, we're believing you like it was in the days of Cane Ridge. Lord, do it again. Let your Holy Spirit fall again. Lord, where people are gripped by the fear of God, they can't shake it, they can't go drink it off. Lord, they're gripped with the fear of God. There's a conviction, Lord, that will draw in the masses unto you in repentance of sin, a true new birth. Lord, we ask you to rebuild the ruins. Lord, rebuild the foundations again. Get us back, Lord, to our roots and our boundary stones. Restore, we pray, in Jesus' name. Isn't that an awesome story? I've seen these things. I've seen these things in River of Life. I've seen where we were just leading worship. 